You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about the issues facing Congress in terms of healthcare, like cuts to Medicare payments and the future of telehealth flexibilities. But first up, let's talk about health equity. The COVID-19 pandemic has drawn attention to longstanding health inequities. Data shows that Hispanic and Black people are about twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as their white counterparts. This is because of structural inequalities, racial bias, or the racial empathy gap, and access to healthcare that is simply inequitable. Oftentimes, healthcare resources are inadequate in Black neighborhoods because of a history of redlining and other discriminatory practices. And work conditions may make minorities more exposed to the virus. For example, many people of color depend on public transportation to get to work or are employed at jobs that were considered essential. As the healthcare industry continues to adjust to a new post-COVID-19 normal, there has been significant momentum behind addressing health equity challenges. With this backdrop, Humana, one of the country's largest insurers, hired its first chief health equity officer in 2021, Dr. Wando Oleola. Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Paige Minemeyer sat down with Dr. Oleola to discuss health equity and if there is a risk, the momentum around this issue could slow. Glad to have you join us. Um, as, as we heard, you know, when you were hired at Humana, the, the company kind of said it created your role to, to identify and track health equity challenges, particularly as, as underscored by COVID. Um, you know, and so far... In, in your job, have there been any surprises that that you weren't kind of expecting? And do you think maybe your role would be different had had COVID not been in the mix when when you were hired? Yeah, you know, I, I started my role as Chief Health Equity Officer at Humana in April of 2021. One of the things I knew coming into the role was that we were in the middle of something that was so much bigger than any one company and bigger than any one organization, and that I would probably have to do a couple things. One, make sure that the the people who already understood how important health inequity was on our society and how health inequities were a reflection of larger social challenges. I'd have to I'd have to make sure the people that knew that felt that this role and this work was going to be a potential solution um, or at least help us get to the path of solutions. But I also knew that I'd have to figure out how to make sure that the people who hadn't bought in to that connection between, you know, health and justice and health inequity and social injustice that hadn't bought into that, that I'd have to figure out how to, how to get them on board. So, you know, I would say doing that in the, middle of a pandemic when people were isolated or working differently, working in, in, in different ways and didn't necessarily have the same tactile opportunity to to make connections and to build bridges and things like that. Trying to do that was was pretty difficult. How do you build, you know, a body of work and kind of an army of supporters around the work when you can't really see them face to face or or kind of be in the same places to kind of pressure right. test some of the ideas. 
And, you know, Humana is a huge health plan, certainly one of the largest in the country and one that our readers watch very closely for kind of cutting edge ideas and new new innovations. I mean, how are you thinking about the role of an insurer in tackling some of these equity challenges? And where do you kind of see your place in that? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like when you're thinking about health equity from a from a large kind of ecosystem perspective, there are a couple of ways that you can influence it. One is through legislative uh, decisions. Um, and one is through kind of financial and, and payment decisions. There are probably many others, but I, I think that those are like kind of some, some big ones. And so from the how you finance and, and what you finance and kind of what you pay for, I think we have a great opportunity because we can we can build in creative ways to finance, if you will, healthy behaviors, healthy opportunities, um, things that that really impact how people experience health or how they how they don't experience good health. And so, for example, we have um, payment design opportunities as as a plan. We can say, you know, we know that there are so many things that impact your ability to have good health, like your social needs and things that that are much more important than sometimes medication or office visits or clinical encounters are things like, you know, those social drivers, social determinants of health, like housing and having healthy food and things like that. So we, we are doing a lot of work to integrate what we believe are important social needs that influence health through like product design and the benefits that we offer to our members, like healthy food cards or providing housing support or providing access to transportation. You know, we, we are doing a lot of work around building a really um, highly integrated, culturally competent, culturally humble workforce. And you have the opportunity to do that when you're also the provider, because you can, you can help shape the way people interact with, with the patient um, and, and make sure that you are, giving people the opportunity to have really robust, um, sensitive, culturally sensitive experiences. You can also see what needs they have kind of in real time as it relates to their very specific um, clinical diagnoses or, or conditions. So when, our, when, a, when a patient comes to one of our clinics and they, they've got uh, a, a unique situation, you know, there may be a, a, a patient, but accompanied by a caregiver who also knows some of the other challenges that their, you know, that their, their parent or their loved one might be facing and is aware of those social needs and they need some help navigating the system. We can offer them something in that moment um, that actually speaks very directly to the needs that they have. We just got a lot of opportunity, both delivering care, but also kind of financing care. Um, you know, you just touched on Centerall, which I know is a, a key priority at Humana right now. Humana is also the bulk of their membership is in in Medicare. So all these kind of senior focused services. How do you think about these equity challenges maybe from through the lens of treating seniors? Is there, you know, unique challenges to that? Do you have to kind of craft messaging specifically for that audience that's maybe a little different than other yeah. patient populations? Great question. Yeah. So, you know, Medicare and we're, we're specifically uh, in the Medicare Advantage space and, uh, you know, the Medicare Advantage program is is a really powerful way to give choice to America's seniors and and think about healthcare holistically, because what it does is it says, OK, you 
here are some of the constructs of Medicare and, and, and kind of fee for service. And how do you, um, what do we expect that you will give? And then you decide how to give it. And essentially you're, you're allowing us to have the opportunity to create and demonstrate value through the Medicare Advantage option. <clears throat> so what we're able to do and what you've seen with Medicare Advantage plans, um, and is that you're able to be a little bit more creative in the way you deliver that care. You've got this, this charge of delivering good care to, to seniors, but you can be creative in how you think about what that looks like. And typically the Medicare Advantage plans are more accessible. So what that means for us is when you think about um, African-American, Black, Hispanic, Latinx, um, seniors with disabilities, you know, they're, they're, they tend to choose Medicare Advantage plans more than, than the fee-for-service um, traditional Medicare. And so what that means is that you have to really think creatively about how do you take care of, of those populations that have the combination of those intersections. So they're not only seniors, but they're also of, you know, racial and ethnic minority um, backgrounds, or they have um, disabilities that make, you know, you know, care consideration important. You have to basically, your innovation requires the consideration of that population. And so that's how, if, if you're not doing things that are going to address some of the social and structural uh, determinants of health, you're not going to be able to have a really successful MA plan because your population really does require that you, that you're focused on that. So I, I don't think it's, it's, it's an accident that, you know, we have, you know, a, a large, very large Medicare Advantage population, but we also have this very strong commitment to health equity because it, you, the population is really dictating that this work is, is important. People have different types of experiences, no matter what their age is. So we have to be really thoughtful about like, what, what do our members want? What do they need? And so we ask them, and we, we, we asked, we have a lot, you know, a lot of questions. We, you know, in 2020, we, you know, during the height of the pandemic, we did like 6 million social needs screenings, trying to understand from our members, like, what are the things that are, are stressing you? What are the things that are standing in your way of good health? And we, we learned a lot from doing that, you know, where, where we might've thought for sure during the pandemic, things like, um, you know, food uh, insecurity were problems. It certainly, they certainly were, and food insecurity remained a big problem of the pandemic. But we also uncovered by doing that, by asking, you know, that social isolation and loneliness were huge factors in how people were 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 kind of thriving or not during the pandemic. And so it, it made us think we have got to start to care for those things. And so I think that just thinking of seniors as a monolith is is, is a mistake. Re- recognizing the unique needs of seniors, and also increasingly how MA plans are are capturing the attention of diverse seniors um, allows us to be much more nimble and creative and, and requires us to be much more sensitive to the needs of different populations. Certainly equity is a, a key topic in the industry right now coming out of COVID, but kind of alongside that, um, there's been a huge increase in the use and interest in virtual health and in digital tools. Um, I know a topic that's kind of near and dear to your heart is is techquity and kind of addressing the the intersection of those issues. Um, I don't know if you could just kind of define that for us and also maybe take it, take us through how Humana is thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I think that whenever you're dealing with a major boom um, in an industry or, or in a field, in a sector, there's a lot of excitement about it. You've got to be really careful that while you're, when you have kind of baseline disparities and you have inequities that are rooted in kind of social, structural policy, things like racism and poverty and discrimination and, and where people live, um, you have to be really careful that you're also caring for, you know, a big advancement, not 
widening disparities or inequities that exist. And so when you think about tech, tech, technology focused equity and, and techquity, as you and specifically as it's become more more well understood during because of the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, we have to we we had to kind of leverage technology to keep people healthy, to keep kids educated, to you know to keep commerce alive. We had to we had to do it. But if you don't have some of the fundamental things that are essential for realizing the opportunity of that technology then you don't have what we consider equity, which is equity in the way technology is used, applied, and experienced. And so a perfect example is when you are um, working with uh, some work that I did actually before I came to Humana, we were looking at, you know, we needed to empower patients at the Ohio State University in our catchment area in central Ohio and our, at some of our more underserved um, locations with technology tools to actually interact with with healthcare and be able to do telehealth visits and be able to do that. But what we found was that we found out that a lot of times they didn't have broadband in those areas. They were really poor, you know, broadband service areas, or they didn't have the right hardware um, or software to support that work. And so you realize that we can do all we want on the clinician side. I can set up all my clinics like I did to be able to deliver telehealth. And we've got the great equipment, we've got workflows, we've got all these things figured out. But if people cannot access them because they don't have some of what I consider also important social determinants of health, broadband access, hardware access to interact, then you have just worsened that digital divide. You have not kind of empowered equity. So being able to really be thoughtful about how do you make sure as you're advancing any any sort of advance, but be in this case, technology, as you are advancing technology, you are also very much paying attention to how those that have been made more vulnerable or more disenfranchised are able to access that solution as well. And so that requires just really rethinking the way you deliver it and and assuring that there's some foundational things that allow people to experience and use the technology. Um, We've touched a couple of times now on, you know, the fact that there's a lot of momentum behind equity right now, you know, coming out of COVID or hopefully coming out of COVID maybe. you know, as we close, I don't know if maybe you could just offer some advice to to your peers in the industry about what we can do to kind of make sure this conversation stay, stays central to, to healthcare and that we don't kind of back off on some of this energy that we have around equity. I'm so glad you asked that because I, I do fear that we're, you know, you've got these great windows of opportunity where there's a lot of attention and energy and, you know, for, for, for good or for bad backlash against kind of the status quo and what we had been doing. And then when that window closes, you lose the the interest or you shift gears to something else that, that seems more important at the time. And I, I, I am always worried that that could happen here. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't because I think people are understanding that, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, if, if, if nothing else, it showed us how important globally, um, how, how much we are connected globally and how important the health is of people across the world in our own health, in our, in our particular environment where, you know, one person coughing in Sweden or in Bangladesh has implications on me in central Ohio. And I think we have hopefully really understood that, that, it is in our best interest as a society, whether that's nationally or internationally, to to allow allow and empower everyone to have their best health because we will feel the 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 impact 
of them not having it. I hope that we'll still believe that and we won't get back into our kind of our own silos where, you know, only the health of our immediate home <laughs> matters to us um, and nothing, nothing more. I think we, I think we will. And there are a few things that I'm seeing that make me feel like this is this, there's some staying power here. One is that I think we, we, we're speaking differently. Like we are, we are, people are, are very much, I remember years ago having conversations with people um, about kind of the bringing social drivers and social needs conversations into primary care. And I remember being at this meeting vividly standing up at this conversation in San Francisco, I was talking and someone stood up and says to me, like, I don't know why we think that it's important for healthcare to now be social workers. And there was this huge conversation that ensued following that. People just were like, I don't get why she's up here saying that we need to have, we need to be thinking about and responding to and addressing social needs in, in healthcare. Like it doesn't fit here. Let the social workers do that. Let the community-based organizations do that. Why are we even having this conversation? Well, I think that, you know, fast forward almost, because that was like, I think that was like 2013 or so. Fast forward, you know, almost a decade. And we are, we, we get it. Like at every healthcare organization that I know of, whether it's an academic institution, a large plan, you know, the clinical delivery environment, people get it. Like they believe like, we cannot. We can only go so far taking care of people and giving them their kind of opportunity to achieve their best health without addressing their social needs or things like structural racism or things like poverty or things like literacy. Like we 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 realize we can only go so far without doing that. And now we are having a conversation that is really st- not starting from why is it even here. It's like how do we do it well in this environment? So I believe that those kind of things give me hope that this has this has staying power that we will realize that the you know, that truly, if we don't have, if we don't have people who have been on the margins, who have been disenfranchised, if we don't move them into the center and have their healthcare be prioritized, that we will all feel the repercussions of that in some way. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk with you. That was Paige Minnemeyer with Dr. Wando Olewala. Next up, we'll talk about Medicare and the future of telehealth flexibilities. But before we continue with our next guest, I have an announcement. Coming up on October 12 is a free virtual event that you won't want to miss. As health plans continue to grow, a key target has emerged, Medicare Advantage. Because of the market's rapid growth, insurers are investing more in elders. At the summit, you'll hear from industry experts and top executives on the lessons they're learning. Just visit FierceHealthPairSummit.com or check out the show notes. And on to our next guest. Congress is returning from its month-long August recess, and they have a big to-do list. Physician groups don't want these cuts to Medicare physician fee schedules, and they're hoping Congress touches on the future of telehealth flexibilities. To run down some of the biggest issues facing physicians in Congress for the rest of the year, reporter Robert King talked with Anders Gilberg. Anders is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the Medical Group Management Association. Here's Robert and Anders. Well, thanks for joining me today, Anders. I'm glad to be here, Robert. Thanks for the invitation. Great. So Congress is returning from its summer break with a lot of things to do. Uh, But before we get into kind of the, the what bills to keep an eye on. Could you paint me a picture of the financial outlook that physicians are going to be facing this year? 
uh, especially considering the lingering impact of the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in uh, 2020, medical practices, physician practices faced a significant impact uh, when volumes of patient visits were reduced. And um, that had a significant um, um, effect on their bottom line. But there was a pretty fast recovery uh, toward the end of 2020 into 2021. And 2021 was a bit more of a recovery year and things had, for most, most places in the country, stabilized. But not only limited to healthcare, but in 2020, about February of 2022, I'm sorry, um, you know, inflation has just been um, skyrocketing. And medical groups and physician practices haven't been immune to that. And so a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today, especially regarding some of the Medicare payment cuts, they're in the context and with the backdrop of this inflationary environment. So the policies that are affecting physicians right now are, you know, exacerbated by the inflationary situation. Yeah, and that's a great segue into my next question, actually. Uh, you've, uh, MGMA has warned Congress about several payment cuts uh, that uh, most notably a 4% cut under the federal PAYGO law, uh, also cuts that were in place under sequestration, which have been on hold for the past few years, Returned this past June, uh, which was a two percent cut. So, tell me a little bit, real quick, about how can these cuts impact physician groups, and and what your, you know, what's the game plan to kind of head off these, uh, you know, reductions? Yeah. Um, why don't I kind of go through and tally up what we're looking at right now? And so, you gave a great introduction to some of the things that have already taken effect in 2022. So the first um, cut that was the reinstatement of the sequest Medicare sequestration, which is basically a 2% tax on every single Medicare claim that a physician practice would submit to Medicare. So the return of the 2% has already hit us. But setting that aside, there's some really significant issues that we face going into 2023. And these are policies that, if Congress doesn't intervene, would all take effect in 2023 on January 1st. So the first one is, um, over the last couple of years, Medicare had done a budget-neutral adjustment to increase office visit codes or evaluation and management codes in Medicare. So physicians, like primary care physicians, would presumably get an increase um, on their office visit codes uh, as a result of that. But what happens when you increase some of the values on, the, on these codes is it creates an across-the-board cut for everything else in Medicare. So as a result of some of these policy decisions a couple of years ago, um, there is now a 4.5% redu reduction to the Medicare conversion factor, which is like this multiplier that is used by Medicare. And um, so that's the first huge cut. That's a, that's a big cut for medical groups that we're looking at. Then in addition to that, there's a 4% PAYGO sequester. So this is a different sequester that was a result of decisions and congressional um, enactment of the American Rescue Plan back in 2021. So that's at least 8.5%. And that would take effect on January 1, 
2023 unless Congress acts. And so we will be advocating that Congress provide the 4.5% increase to the conversion factor to mitigate that budget neutrality cut. And then also to waive the 4% PAYGO sequester, so get rid of the 8% cut. But in addition to that, seeing that we are facing huge inflation in 2022, asking that Congress provide an inflation update based on something called the Medicare Economic Index, um, so physicians can keep up with inflation because not unlike every other industry, especially with respect to staffing, um, that um, it's been very difficult in this environment for practices to be competitive. Anders, tell me a little bit uh, about the kind of political environment to try and get these cuts postponed. There was an effort earlier in the year to kind of provide more relief for COVID-19 to uh, for vaccines and for testing that got stalled in the Senate. However, Congress has typically you know, delayed these PAYGO cuts from going into effect uh, in other instances. So tell me a little bit about the environment that you may face and any obstacles you may face in getting these cuts uh, you know, delayed in, the rema- in this remaining congressional session. Earlier on August 7th, there was a pretty large piece of legislation with healthcare provisions, um, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which was something that primarily affected drug pricing and some some um, issues like that, not directly related to uh, you know medical practices, but that was strictly implemented and voted on along party line. Physician practices are going to have to make really tough decisions. They do not want to stop taking Medicare patients or reduce the number of visits available for Medicare patients. But, you know, Medicare already pays in many cases for services at a rate that's below cost. So adding on an eight and a half percent cut on top of that could be devastating. And in order for physician practices to survive, they might have to begin to take measures like limiting slots for uh, new Medicare patients or the like. And we don't want to have that. What are some of the uh, regulatory help you're looking for from the Biden administration to ensure that this boom in telehealth use that started with the pandemic continues even now that, you know, in into the future? So I, I will say we've been working on telehealth even prior to the uh, pandemic. But in the Medicare program, telehealth is largely not covered outside of rural areas. And um, so, and there were all kinds of restrictions in terms of where you could have the telehealth occur. So as opposed to what we saw when um, the Congress and the administration under the public health emergency, so they used the public health emergency in COVID to basically suspend all of the existing statutory limitations on the use of telehealth. And then that was, uh, a, you know, it really saved a lot of medical practices as well as patients, the ability to, in those early days of the, of the pandemic, to access your physician using your cell phone or a non-HIPAA compliant device. And the physicians could, you know, be in their home um, and talking to somebody on FaceTime as opposed to 
you know, going into the hospital or office where, you know, we weren't sure about, you know, the, uh, the contagious nature of COVID early on. As things started to stabilize a bit, telehealth use started to decrease a bit as patients became more comfortable going back to the office. But the policies remain pretty important. It's important to remember for the public health emergency that, you know, it's not just uh, with uh, Medicare telehealth flexibilities. There's a whole host of other reporting requirements that were waived and and, uh, changes to Medicaid enrollment that could come with uh, kind of the unwinding of that emergency. And, And so, yeah, that is definitely something to keep in mind, uh, you know, where everyone's uh, health and human services said that they would give us 60 days. I know that some people have wanted more than that. Uh, and we'll know soon, uh, likely whether or not that emergency has been extended. Um, Absolutely. So, so once that ends, I know that Congress has, you know, taken action to keep in place some of the federal, some of the, uh, flexibilities that you mentioned, you know, for a certain amount of time after the public health emergency, I believe the latest bill is through December 2024. Uh, tell me what uh, MGMA is uh, is looking for. Yeah. So first, we want to expand telehealth services under Medicare by permanently re- removing that geographic uh, restriction that I talked about. So again, only limited to rural areas. You're just not going to have a huge uptake in telehealth without that broader um, restriction removed. We also had uh, the addition of not, it's not for everything, but there may be some situations where audio only visits could um, be paid for at a rate that adequately covers the cost of delivering care. And so we want the extension of audio only visits um, to continue. Um, And also the issue of parity, all things being considered, if for certain services, it's not going to be for everything, but for certain services, um, we believe that you could pay telehealth visits at the same uh, claims back to physicians. You could pay physicians for telehealth visits at the same rate as in-person visits. While in-person visits might have certain overhead expenses uh, attributed to them, so do telehealth visits because you have a technology platform and the staff time to set it up and to make sure the patients are on the platform. So it, it doesn't go with, come without any, you know, significant reduction in cost. And um, so, we're, you know, those are kind of the highlights of it. Really, what we're just trying to do is to ensure continuity of care after the public health emergency. And to for those patients that really are relying on telehealth now is to not just have it drop off. So getting back to the bill, the bill would do this. It would extend some of these flexibilities. We're very pleased with this. Um, it would do it temporarily. And then I think what we're going to do is spend the next couple of years after um, taking a look and see if any of those areas of concern that Congress had prior to the pandemic really um, rise to make it so they have to make adjustments in terms of a permanent telehealth expansion beyond 2024. Definitely something we're going to have to, to keep an eye on. So it's saying, it seems like uh, you all have a full plate uh, for the fall Yes, uh, between uh, telehealth and these these uh, cuts, these medic- potential cuts and everything that are going to be, uh, you know, on the on the chopping block. So we'll see. Uh, but thanks so much, Anders, for speaking with us and for sharing kind of what 
positions should be on the lookout for on Capitol Hill. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. Hey, I really appreciate it, Robert. That was Robert King and Anders Gilbert. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And since we're a new podcast, be sure to subscribe to our feed to hear us every Wednesday. We've got more great stuff to come. So just ask your smart speaker to play Podnosis. Podnosis.